in the crisp morning air of December the 27th, 1831, Charles Darwin stood on the bustling deck of the HMS Beagle, filled with a heady blend of anticipation and trepidation. The previous captain of the Beagle, Captain Pringle Stokes, had succumbed to a major depression midway through the Beagle's previous voyage and had shot himself. The date of departure had already been delayed multiple times and their two previous attempts to set sail on the 10th of December and on the 21st of December had failed. On the 10th they hit enormous waves off the coast of Plymouth causing them to turn back and Charles to get extremely seasick. On the 27th, they managed to get 11 miles from Plymouth before hitting gale-force winds and turning back. Not the most auspicious of starts to one of the greatest voyages of scientific discovery in history. As the mighty ship cast off its moorings in the harbour of Plymouth, the world seemed to pause. With its taut sails billowing in the wind, the Beagle embarked on a voyage that would etch its name into the annals of scientific history. Darwin, a young naturalist, embarked on his maiden voyage, ready to explore uncharted waters, exotic lands and the mysteries of life itself. Little did he know that this unassuming departure would set in motion a journey that would reshape our understanding of life on Earth. Hi, I'm Shane Lee, and this is the Enduring Lives podcast, where we explore the lives and enduring legacies of the world's most extraordinary people. In this episode, we are exploring the life of Charles Darwin, the naturalist simultaneously revered and reviled for his world-shaking theory of evolution by natural selection. We will journey with him throughout his voyage of undiscovered worlds on the Beagle, we will see him develop his theory of evolution and deal with the reactions it evoked. We will be with him during the highs and the lows. We will see the world through his eyes and then at the end we will understand why Charles Darwin's legacy endures to this day. If you want to find the previous episodes of the podcast or if you want to see the show notes with sources for this episode, head over to EnduringLives.com. If you have five minutes to let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast, wherever you're listening, please do. It would really help the show. There are only a handful of people whose impact on the world was such that nearly everyone recognises their name. Charles Darwin is one such name. His ideas had such power that they shook the world. His theory of evolution by natural selection revolutionised biology and transformed the way we understood our human origins. He most famously sailed a voyage around the world on the HMS Beagle 
and along the way he studied all varieties of natural history, including the geology of mountains, the formation of corals, and a wide range of plants, animals, and insects. Throughout this voyage, he collected numerous specimens, including fossils of as-yet-undiscovered creatures, and he recorded it all in a diary, which he published shortly after returning to England, after over five years of adventure. His observations and discoveries on this odyssey were to form the foundations of his theory of evolution by natural selection, which he did not publish until over 20 years after the voyage's end. When Darwin published his theory of evolution in On the Origin of Species in 1859, to say there was a mixed reaction would be an understatement. The church was the primary opponent to Darwin's theory. Because for those in the church that held a literal interpretation of the Bible, the idea that all life on the planet had changed over time and by extension shared a common ancestor was a contradiction of the idea that life had been intelligently designed. Notwithstanding Darwin's heretical views, there were some in the church that argued that the theory could be considered part of the mechanism of intelligent design. Within the scientific community, Darwin found greater acceptance of his theory. But there were sceptics that attempted to pick holes in his ideas. Some argued that even if what Darwin was saying was true, there were things that were too complex to be explained by evolution, like the human eye. Darwin found support from other scientists, but it took a while for his ideas to become the consensus. As we will see, Charles Darwin's contributions to our understanding of the world place him squarely in the upper echelons of human achievement. So now, let's explore the life and enduring legacy of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was born on the 12th of February, 1809, in the Darwin family home called The Mount, in a town called Shrewsbury in Shropshire. His father, Robert Darwin, was a wealthy doctor who had commissioned the building of the house in 1800. Charles' mother was Susanna Wedgwood. The Darwins were a wealthy family, and the young Darwin was deeply influenced, not only by their affluence, but by their intellectual heritage. His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a renowned physician, poet, and natural philosopher. Erasmus had written extensively about evolutionary ideas, even suggesting that all life descended from a common ancestor. Growing up, Charles was exposed to these progressive ideas and was inspired by his grandfather's writings and theories. This intellectual foundation, coupled with the resources to attend prestigious institutions like the University of Edinburgh and Christ College Cambridge, provided Charles with a unique environment to nurture his curiosity. His family's affluence allowed him the freedom to explore and indulge his interests which ultimately led to his groundbreaking voyage and studies. Although his father did not initially want Charles to sail on the Beagle. In early life, Charles did not show much promise. He despised the time he spent in Shrewsbury School, wrote learning classics. By the time he was 16, 
His father thought that Charles would not amount to much more than a disgrace to the family. Charles had developed some interests that would be instrumental in his later work. He read about natural history and took up bird watching, and developed a fascination with insects and minerals, collecting them both. Charles looked up to and admired his older brother Erasmus, who was named after their grandfather, and who himself had developed an interest in chemistry. The brothers set up a lab in a shed and would spend hours dabbling with various experiments. The headmaster at Charles' school chastised him for spending too much time with chemistry and not enough time studying the classics. This obsession led his schoolmates to give Charles the nickname Gas. Perhaps because his father thought that Charles wouldn't amount to anything, did he arrange for Charles to go to Edinburgh University to study medicine with his older brother at the age of 16, earlier than would have normally been the case. His father had thought that the rigours of learning medicine would give the aimless Charles some direction. Charles found the study of medicine to be dull and tedious, and as a result during his time at Edinburgh, he became more involved in natural history pursuits. He joined the Plinian Society, which was for students interested in natural history. It was here that he met Robert Grant. Grant was a professor of zoology at the university and a leading expert on marine invertebrates, which he introduced to Darwin during field excursions along the coast. Grant was a follower of Lamarckian evolution, which at the time was a radical theory which proposed that organisms evolved during their lifetimes and then passed those changes on to their offspring. Lamarck posited that, for example, the giraffe grew its neck by stretching to reach fruit in high trees. And therefore, over a series of generations, this would lead to large changes in the giraffe's neck. This theory is discredited today, and Darwin himself wasn't convinced by it. But he acknowledged in his autobiography that talks with Grant about evolution and his reading of his grandfather's book Zoonomia, which proposed similar ideas, may have influenced his later theory of evolution in On the Origin of Species. While Darwin had found studying medicine boring, his time at Edinburgh was not completely wasted. His interest in natural history had led him to meet people like Robert Grant. Another person Darwin met because of this interest was John Edmonston. John Edmonston was a former slave who was living in Edinburgh at the time Darwin was. John taught Charles taxidermy because Charles wanted to learn to stuff birds. He didn't know it at the time, but the ability to correctly stuff and preserve birds was going to be of critical importance to his development of the theory of evolution. In April 1827, Darwin grew so despondent with studying medicine that he left Edinburgh without completing his degree. For the next few months, Darwin travelled around Scotland and visited London, where he toured the Natural History Museum. He then spent time shooting in Shropshire. Darwin was without a care in the world, and appeared to pay not the slightest bit of attention to what he might pursue as a career now that medicine was off the table. His father had other plans. He was disappointed with Charles for abandoning his degree. It appeared that Charles would not be able to apply himself to becoming a lawyer or joining the military, 
which, other than doctors, were the primary careers of the Darwin family. Instead, his father ruled with an iron fist and determined that Charles would study to join the clergy. So Charles was sent to Cambridge University. Coincidentally, at the same time Darwin was at Christ College, Cambridge, his second cousin, William Darwin Fox, was also enrolled there. It was he who introduced Darwin to entomology, the study of insects. Darwin had already displayed an interest in insects and collecting them. When he was 10 years old, he had gone to the Welsh coast where he became fascinated with the insects and moths he saw. He started collecting the dead insects he found because he didn't think it was right to kill them. It was during his time at Cambridge that Darwin started one of the great obsessions of his life, collecting beetles. Collecting beetles was one of the few things from Cambridge that Darwin did not regard as a complete waste of time. He became rivals with another Cambridge student, Charles Babington, who had the nickname Beetles because of his similar obsession with the insects. They would compete with each other over who could collect the greatest number of new species. A famous tale from Darwin's autobiography shows the lengths he would go to in this pursuit. He was out collecting beetles when he found two species, so he grabbed one in each hand, but then he saw a third which he was so desperate to have, so he put the beetle from his right hand into his mouth in order to grab the third. Unfortunately for Darwin, the species he put into his mouth was a species that spits chemicals to defend itself, which it promptly did. It burnt his tongue and he was forced to spit it out and in the meantime, the third beetle got away. Perhaps the most crucial chapter of Charles' life happened at Cambridge. It was his friendship with Professor Henslow. Before his time at Cambridge, Charles had heard of John Stevens Henslow. Professor Henslow's reputation was, according to Charles, as a man who knew every branch of science. Cambridge offered Charles the opportunity to meet Henslow. Henslow held an open house for those interested in science once a week. It wasn't long before in 1828, Darwin was invited to one of these evenings by his cousin, William Darwin Fox. Very quickly, the relationship between Henslow and Darwin grew. Darwin became known as the man who walks with Henslow. They would walk together every day and talk about the various topics they were both interested in. Botany, entomology, chemistry and geology. The reason that Darwin's relationship with Henslow was such a crucial chapter is because without Henslow, Darwin would have likely never ended up on the ship that made his name, the Beagle. In 1831, a few years after he met Darwin, Henslow was offered a position as a naturalist on the Beagle. Henslow's wife persuaded him to turn down the offer. Henslow recommended that Charles take his place by writing to Captain Fitzroy, who was leading the voyage. Captain Robert Fitzroy was the 26-year-old who was going to lead the Beagle's voyage to survey South America. This was to be the Beagle's second voyage. The first voyage had ended with the previous captain's suicide. Captain Pringle Stokes had shot himself while the Beagle was anchored in Port Famine on the Strait of Magellan in South America. In order to prevent a similar fate, Captain Fitzroy was seeking a gentleman companion, 
preferably a naturalist, to accompany him on the voyage in the hopes that companionship would starve off the same depression that befell Captain Stokes. Talking to the crew as equals was something Fitzroy wanted to avoid in order to ensure his authority on board. The position wasn't paid and Charles would have to pay his own way on the voyage, which he would need his father for. Darwin's father objected to the idea of him spending the planned nearly three years on the Beagle. He saw it as a waste of time, and he thought it mirrored Charles' choice to abandon his medical education in Edinburgh, and that this too would sabotage his career prospects, because this too would see him leave university without getting his degree. It's only in hindsight that we see how wrong he was. It wasn't just Darwin's father who objected to Charles joining Fitzroy on this voyage, but Charles did find support from some of his cousins, and most importantly, his uncle Josiah, who was about the only person who could convince Darwin's father to let him go. After some deliberation, his father relented and agreed that Darwin could go on the voyage. Charles, elated, rushed to send a letter to Captain Fitzroy to accept the position, hoping that the position hadn't been filled in the meantime. When Fitzroy's reply came back, it was a devastating blow. Somewhere along the line, there had been a miscommunication. Fitzroy had already promised the position to a friend. As an offer of consolation, Fitzroy said that if this friend turned down the offer, Charles could take his place instead. It's hard to imagine the disappointment that Charles must have felt upon reading this letter. His hopes of the adventure of a lifetime were dashed with a few words. Nevertheless, Charles travelled to London to make contingency plans, in the off chance that he could still go on the voyage. He arrived in London in early September 1831. Shortly after arriving, he met Fitzroy, who said that only five minutes ago did his friend turn down the offer and that if Charles still wanted to go, the position was his. Charles was ecstatic. This news meant that there was now a mad scramble to get everything ready for the voyage, which was due to sail in late September, leaving only a couple of weeks to prepare. They didn't set sail in late September. Sailing was initially delayed owing to the need to refit the Beagle. On the 24th of October, Charles moved to lodgings in Plymouth in order to await the day of departure. He would later report that this time in Plymouth was the most miserable I ever spent, owing to the thought of leaving his friends and family behind for so long. His mood sunk further when he saw the Beagle for the first time particularly when he saw the cabin he was to sleep in for the foreseeable future. After months of delays, on the 10th of December 1831, Captain Fitzroy starts the voyage of the Beagle. Excitement and trepidation were in the air as the ship set sail. Things went bad for Charles almost immediately. He was overcome by seasickness and was throwing up over the side of the ship. Come the evening, things took a turn for the worst, with the ship running into enormous waves in the English Channel. Charles was experiencing the terror of the sea. In the darkness of his cabin, 
he could hear the cacophonous roar of the sea and the shouts of Captain Fitzroy and the crew as they battled the elements. All the while, Charles was still being sick. In the morning, Captain Fitzroy declared the attempt a failure and turned the ship back to Plymouth. It wasn't until the shortest day of the year, the 21st of December, that they got the opportunity to set sail again. The weather was perfect to make a break for it, so they did. They hadn't been sailing long when they ran aground in low tide. Captain Fitzroy ordered the whole crew on deck to run back and forth in the hopes of rocking the ship free. And it worked. They were soon smoothly sailing into the night. In the morning when Charles woke, the ship had been turned around. During the night they had run into gale force winds, so after only getting 11 miles from the shore, they were again sailing back to Plymouth on yet another failed attempt. On Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, conditions were again perfect, so Captain Fitzroy, eager for the adventure by this point, wanted to set sail. Unfortunately, all the crew were blind drunk from the Christmas celebrations, so they had to wait another day and hope for favourable weather. Finally, after the date was pushed back several times and two failed attempts to set sail, one of the most famous voyagers in scientific history finally set sail on the 27th of December, 1831. This time, they weren't going to turn back. After leaving England, the plan was to sail for around 10 days, aiming for Tenerife. Darwin still wasn't acclimatised to being on board a ship, and spent the first few days in a terrible state. He was seasick and throwing up all the time. He also felt bad about the punishment the crew were receiving at the hands of Captain Fitzroy for their being drunk on Boxing Day, which had prevented them setting sail a day earlier. Captain Fitzroy was whipping members of the crew. On the 6th of January, they arrived at Tenerife, but in order to land, they were required to quarantine for 12 days. There had been a cholera outbreak in England, and the islanders did not want to be infected. Fitzroy decided not to wait, and that they would instead set sail again, this time for St. Jago. Darwin was dejected by this because he thought he would never get a chance again to study the tropical life on Tenerife. St. Jago was, by the accounts that Darwin had read, a barren volcanic island. But when they made land on the 16th of January 1832, he was pleasantly surprised to find palm trees which delighted him. They spent 23 days on St. Jago before setting sail again. Darwin used his time on St. Jago to study the life and geology of the island, and it was here that we see the first sparks of Darwin's later work on evolution. He had used some of his time on board to read an influential book, The Principles of Geology, by Charles Lyell. While it's hard to imagine today, this geology book was very controversial at the time. Prior to this book, the prevailing viewpoint about the Earth was mostly influenced by the Bible, and the dominant theory of how structures like mountains came to be was called catastrophism. 
It held that large catastrophic events, like for example the Great Flood in the Bible, were the dominant cause of change on the earth. Lyle's book, however, departed from this thinking and proposed a theory of uniformitarianism, which argued that slow, continual processes like erosion and sedimentation were the force of change on the earth. This was a world-changing idea that required a completely different perspective. While on St. Jago, Darwin started to notice evidence that Lyle might be right. Darwin was extremely observant, and one day on the island he noticed a white band that passed through the rock on the island. The band was made of crushed shells and corals, which suggested that the area had been under the sea at some point. Darwin noted that the band wasn't even. In some places, it was much higher than others, which suggested that this wasn't the result of some catastrophic change, but more likely the result of slow and uneven processes, as Lyle had suggested. Darwin had the answer to what this slow process might be. It was subsidence. This discovery is important because it led Darwin to the idea that the world was constantly evolving. While on the Beagle, Charles made a series of observations about coral reefs, which he would later publish in 1842 in his book The Structure and Distribution of Coral Reefs. One of the objectives of Fitzroy's Beagle voyage was to investigate the formation of atolls, which are ring-shaped corals that encircle a lagoon. At the time, no one understood how these structures formed. The problem was that corals need sunlight to survive, and therefore they need to be in shallow waters. And if they grew in shallow waters, why did they grow in a ring with deep water that formed a lagoon in the middle? Charles was the first to work it out. Although it wasn't until the 1950s that scientists managed to drill deep enough, over a kilometre, into an atoll to confirm Darwin's idea. He had theorised that what happened was at first there would be a volcanic island, and around this, coral would start to grow. Over large spans of time, the volcanic island would sink into the sea, and this would mean that the coral would sink too. But Charles reasoned that the rate of sinkage and the rate at which the corals grew would even out, such that over time, the coral would stay close to the surface of the water, while a deep lagoon would form in the place of the sinking island. Almost the most widely recognised part of the voyage was the visit to the Galapagos Islands. It was here that he made some of his famous observations, which would later play an important role in his theory of evolution in his book On the Origin of Species. Before Darwin's publication of this book, the prevailing theory about why different species existed was the idea of centres of creation. Like the theory of catastrophism in geology, this theory was rooted in biblical ideas. The theory held that species didn't change. Instead, they had been designed for the geographic region in which they lived. Multiple geographic regions, or centres of creation, would lead to the necessity of varieties of species. Charles himself held this belief, 
even when he was on the Galapagos Islands. But his observations, particularly of the varieties of finch across the island, started to sow the seeds of doubt in his mind about this commonly held belief. It was in October 1835 when Charles was on the Galapagos Islands that he noticed and observed the different species of finch across the islands. He had collected some which he later had examined by John Gould, an ornithologist, a person who studies birds. Gould categorised the birds as varieties of ground finch. Darwin had originally thought that some of the finches were altogether different species. Gould's categorisation led Darwin to an important thought, which showed the sparks of his theory beginning to ignite. In his published account of the voyage of the Beagle, he writes, Seeing this graduation and diversity of structure in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy that from an original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species had been taken and modified for different ends. This idea was to play a crucial role later in Darwin's theory of natural selection. He later reasoned that one species had evolved independently on different islands, owing to the characteristics and ecology of each island. This was how one species became many species. We also see here how Darwin's taxonomy lessons with John Edmonston in Edinburgh were important because they gave Charles the ability to preserve the birds so they could be studied later by John Gould back in England. Throughout the voyage, more evidence that the world was constantly evolving was beginning to be noticed by Darwin. Whilst in South America and Australia, Darwin discovered and collected a number of fossils. Earlier in the voyage, in September 1832, Darwin was searching a bay in Punta Alta, Argentina, when he discovered a number of different fossils of different species of giant sloths. One of them was called Megatherium, and it was a species that was about the size of a small car. This species had already been discovered in 1788, but Darwin had found a fossilised head of the creature. This was later used to complete a skeleton of the Megatherium in the Natural History Museum in London, which, at the time of recording, is still on display to this day. One of the other species Darwin found was a newly discovered species of giant ground sloth, although Darwin did not know that at the time. The species was named Mylodon Darwini, in honour of Darwin by Richard Owen in 1840, after Owen realised it was a new species. It wasn't just the natural world that Darwin observed on this voyage. The presence of slavery was common during their travels. Charles was an abolitionist and wanted to see the end of slavery. In his letters, he wrote how proud he was of England for moving closer to abolishing slavery, which it did during his time at sea in 1833. One of the few times Darwin was on the receiving end of Captain Fitzroy's notorious anger was following a discussion about slavery, which Darwin opposed. Though the voyage of the Beagle was originally planned to take just over two years, it actually ended up taking over five years, 
And while we might think of a sea voyage involving most of the time being at sea, during this time, Darwin actually spent over three years on land. In October 1836, Darwin finally set foot upon English soil again when they arrived at Falmouth. Darwin immediately rushed back to Shrewsbury. After two days of travelling by horse-drawn coach, Darwin finally arrived home in the middle of the night, when everyone else was in bed. Instead of waking them, he went straight to bed himself. In the morning, to everyone's surprise, Darwin announced his return by walking in at breakfast. His sisters were thrilled, although they were worried that he looked ill. The servants celebrated his return by getting drunk. After getting back, Captain Fitzroy very quickly got married, which surprised Charles because not once in the five years they were on the Beagle did Fitzroy mention his bride-to-be. Darwin did not immediately publish his theory of natural selection following his return to England. It was over 20 years after the voyage that Charles finally published his most groundbreaking theory. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. When Darwin was back in England, he now had the immense task of dealing with all of the specimens he had collected. During the voyage, he had been regularly sending collections back to England. John Henslow was one of the recipients of these specimens. After only a few days back in England, Charles went to Cambridge, primarily to talk to Henslow about his discoveries. He spent only a short while in Cambridge. A few days later, on the 20th of October, 1836, he was in London, staying with his brother Erasmus in Great Marlborough Street. His time in London was spent with visiting learned institutions and societies like the British Museum and the Linnean Society where he found people who wanted to hear the tales of his voyage and wanted to see the specimens like his megatherium fossil. Throughout Darwin's voyage on the Beagle, there was one book, which we've already mentioned, which influenced him more than any other. Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. On Saturday, the 29th of October, he finally met Lyell. Lyell had invited Charles for dinner. Charles retold many of the tales from the voyage and Lyle was enthralled. It had become apparent to Darwin just how much work lay ahead of him following the return from the voyage. He was planning to publish his diaries from the journey and he had to deal with all the specimens he had collected. This meeting with Lyle was useful in that regard. Lyle not only introduced Charles to Richard Owen, who would later help Charles with the categorisation of his fossils, but Lyle also offered Darwin some advice. He told Darwin not to waste time with the running of societies. But he said not to mention that he had said this. As Darwin would, with his newfound fame, surely be offered positions in scientific societies. It wasn't until 1839, three years after Darwin returned to England, that he published his diary, The Voyage of the Beagle. In the interim, Darwin had been elected to the Athenaeum, the Royal Society, and in January he had married his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood. Darwin did not rush into marriage. 
Before he got married, he had meticulously weighed up the pros and cons of marriage. He compared the prospect of living a lonely life with the infinity of troubles and expense in getting and furnishing a house. In the end, as we know, he decided to marry Emma. In 1842, they bought Down House in Kent, and it was to be the house which they would spend the rest of their lives together. In 1846, Darwin rented an additional bit of land, on which he had constructed a path, which was called the Sandwalk. The Sandwalk formed a circuit, and Darwin would walk several circuits of this path every day. He used the time for uninterrupted thinking, which was valuable in the development of his evolutionary theories. In his early life, Charles had been a Christian, and as we have heard, he went to Cambridge in order to become a clergyman. When Darwin travelled on the Beagle, he started to notice things that made him question his faith. One such example were parasitic wasps, which Darwin observed during his travels. These wasps would lay their eggs inside caterpillars. The eggs would hatch inside the caterpillars and then eat their way out, killing the caterpillar in the process. Darwin wrote that he could not persuade himself that a beneficent and omnipotent god would have designedly created these wasps with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. But... In 1851, he renounced his Christian beliefs completely, following the death of his eldest daughter, the ten-year-old Annie. Darwin had watched helplessly as Annie suffered for months with what was diagnosed as bilious fever with typhoid character. He was in the room when she breathed her last breath. Charles described this as a bitter and cruel loss, and it profoundly impacted him. He gave up all belief in God, although in later life he would regard himself as an agnostic. The first public announcement of Darwin's theory of evolution happened at the Linnum Society in London on the 1st of July 1858. Darwin had first formulated some of his early ideas that would form the basis of his theory of evolution whilst on the Beagle. And it wasn't until 1842 that Darwin completed a sketch of his theory and in 1844 when he wrote a preliminary version of his theory down. Both were not published during Darwin's lifetime, but he had shared his ideas with friends like John Henslow and John Dalton Hooker. There are several competing theories as to why it took Darwin so long to publicly announce his theory. Some have argued that Darwin thought it was unsafe to do so, and the backlash from the church would bring his reputation to the ground. In one famous letter to John Dalton Hooker, Darwin states that he was beginning to believe that species are not immutable, and he thought that this was like confessing to a murder, whereas others have argued that he hadn't done so because of the mountain of work that occupied his time. Why Darwin chose 1858 to reveal his theory was a little more clear-cut. In 1858, Alfred Russell Wallace sent Darwin a manuscript 
of his own theory of evolution. In correspondence with John Henslow and John Dalton Hooker, it was clear that Darwin did not want to lose credit for his theory. The meeting of the Linham Society on the 1st of July 1858 was a specially scheduled meeting that arose out of the newfound urgency to publish Darwin's ideas. The meeting included Darwin's ideas about evolution as well as Alfred Russell Wallace's ideas. Darwin's theory of evolution held that plants, animals and all living organisms were not fixed, but instead were continually evolving. The mechanism by which this happens, Darwin proposed, was natural selection. Natural selection can be explained by three processes. Variation, selection and inheritance. Individuals within species are subject to natural and random variations in their traits. The environment will select or prefer individuals with the most suitable traits for their environment. These traits can then be inherited by the offspring of those individuals and the process continues. Darwin argued that over geological time, that is extremely large spans of time, that this process would amount to complete changes in species. To give an example of the sort of time we are talking about, in his book, Charles notes his calculations for how long the geology of an area called the Weld in Kent was likely to have taken to form. He calculated it would have taken at least 306,662,400 years. Here we see how much Charles Lyell's principles of geology influenced Darwin. Lyell had in turn been influenced by James Hutton, who came up with the idea of geological time, which Lyell used in the principles of geology. Let's look at the theory in more detail. Recall how Darwin noticed the different species of finch on the different islands of the Galapagos. Each island can be thought of as a separate environment. The finches across the different islands had different shaped beaks. Within Darwin's theory, this can be explained using the three processes of natural selection, variation, selection and inheritance. As finches are born on each of the islands, each finch may have a slight variation in their beak size and shape, similar to how human noses are different between individuals. On each of the islands there are different species of plants which store their seeds in different ways. For some of the finches, their beak shape and size will prove to be an advantage in getting and eating these seeds. There is an advantage to their particular beak shape. Darwin's theory suggests that this advantage, however slight, will increase the chances that that individual will mate and therefore pass on their beak shape to their offspring. Both environmental selection and sexual selection are at work here. Finches better adapted to the environment, in this case getting seeds, will be better able to provide for a mate and therefore be more likely to be selected by such a mate. Creating offspring in this scenario leads to a higher probability of the offspring sharing the advantageous traits of the particular beak shape. 
and the process starts again with the next generation. Darwin's groundbreaking work on the origin of species by means of natural selection was published in the next year, in 1859, over 20 years after he returned from his famous voyage on the Beagle. The book was an immediate sensation, with the first printing selling out only days after its publication on the 24th of November. The ideas in the book were controversial to say the least. The scientific community of the time had been moving closer and closer towards the idea that species evolved or transmuted, as they would have said. The notion of a fixed earth with fixed species was started to be doubted in the time leading up to Darwin's publication. Explorers had been digging up fossils from long extinct creatures which could not easily be explained by a fixed set of species. Also, as we have heard, Charles Lyell published The Principles of Geology, which argued that the earth forms and features could be explained by slow, gradual processes over extraordinary lengths of time. This meant for some members of the scientific community, Darwin's ideas were easily accepted as the best-known explanation of life. But even among scientists, there were some who viewed Darwin's ideas with scepticism. The root of this for many was the lack of evidence at the time. More evidence of the mechanism of Darwin's natural selection was needed to convince them. Perhaps one of the most unpalatable ideas of Darwin's theory was that man was descended from some other species. This is often misunderstood to mean that man is descended from modern apes. Instead, the idea is that humans and modern apes are both descended from some common ancestor. This common ancestor is today yet to be discovered and is often referred to as the missing link. The implication of this idea was unpalatable because it implied that humans did not hold some special place in the universe. This had profound and wide-reaching consequences. Darwin's theory challenged the religious orthodoxy of the day with the rejection of the claim of a perfectly designed world, claiming instead that the species that exist today are the product of millions of years of incremental change. With this, the idea of God having designed the world as it is and as it always was started to fall apart. But the religious community was itself divided on Darwin's ideas. The Church of England outright rejected the theory, whereas more liberal Anglicans thought that Darwin's ideas were compatible with religious doctrine, and evolution by natural selection could very well be a mechanism designed by God. The debate and impact of Darwin's work was to continue for years. In 1860, there was a famous debate at the Oxford Museum of Natural History on the idea of evolution proposed by Darwin only a few months earlier. Darwin himself was not able to attend the debate due to ill health, but several of his supporters attended, including, most famously, Thomas Huxley, who would shortly after the debate become known as Darwin's Bulldog for his impassioned defence of Darwin's theory during the discussion. Bishop Samuel Wilberforce was one of the most vocal opponents to Darwin's ideas at the meeting. 
But someone who was also there was Captain Fitzroy, who by this time had been promoted to Rear Admiral. Fitzroy, as we know, led the voyage of the Beagle where Charles had made so many of his observations that helped him form his theory. At this debate, when called upon by Henslow, who was chairing the debate, Fitzroy held the Bible over his head and claimed that he believed the Bible held the truth and that if he had known what Charles was going to write, he would have never allowed him to set sail on the Beagle. While Charles was unable to attend the debate, he was nonetheless engaged with the discussions about his magnum opus. Many wrote disparaging reviews of his work. Darwin noted that one of the common themes of these reviews was the difficulty with the idea of natural selection. For them, natural selection implied a selector. This caused Darwin to lament his explanations in the book and also consider that the term natural selection wasn't great. He wondered if natural preservation would have been better. It wasn't just bad reviews that came from the publication of The Origin of Species. It also likely lost Darwin a knighthood, although he is unlikely to have known about it. Sometime in 1859, Lord Palmerston, the then Prime Minister, had reportedly submitted Darwin's name to Queen Victoria for the honour. But following the publication of Darwin's work, Samuel Wilberforce, who had rallied against the theory at the Oxford debate, argued along with the Queen's advisers that to knight Darwin was to accept his theory. Darwin was never knighted. As the 1860s progressed, Darwin's theory of natural selection started to become more widely accepted and adopted. However, there were unaccounted gaps in the theory. One of these gaps was an explanation of how traits are passed from parents to offspring. Darwin published The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication in January 1868 in an attempt to close this gap. In this work, he proposed a theory of heredity which suggested that organisms are continually producing gemmules. Gemmules, Darwin suggested, were small particles that were capable of self-replicating and therefore creating the constituent parts of an organism. Each part of the body generates them, he claimed, and could be influenced by the environment. These gemmules were passed on to offspring via sexual reproduction. Because parts came from each parent and the gemmules could be changed by the environment, it was a neat theory that potentially closed the gap in the broader theory of natural selection. This theory was called pangenesis and unfortunately for Darwin, it was dead wrong. This blunder shows that even among the best minds of the world, mistakes are still to be made. The theory was widely criticised at the time, and Darwin had not conducted any experiments to support his hypothesised gemmules. After the publication of the book, Darwin corresponded with his cousin, Francis Galton, about the theory, which Galton challenged. In a famous series of experiments, Galton set out to test the theory of pangenesis. Galton took black rabbits and white rabbits and transfused their blood so the black rabbits would have the blood of the white rabbits and vice versa. 
If the theory of pangenesis was correct, it should be the case that when the two white rabbits with transfused blood from a different colour rabbit bred, that their offspring should have different colour fur from their parents. Galton found that this was not the case, and therefore claimed that the theory was wrong. It wasn't until 1900, after Darwin had died, that a better theory replaced pangenesis. It was Gregor Mendel's theory of heredity, which was originally proposed in 1865, but not rediscovered until 1900. With this, the theory of pangenesis was put to bed, but Mendel's theory helped support Darwin's theory of evolution nonetheless. In 1871, Darwin published The Descent of Man, which extended his existing evolutionary theory. Out of this work also sprang the expression of emotions in man and animals, which was originally a chapter in The Descent of Man, but was published as a separate work in the following year of 1872. In The Descent of Man, Darwin addressed a concern that he had not been able to solve in On the Origin of Species. When we discussed finches earlier, we discussed how the beak shape could be an advantage to the animal in its particular environment, and that therefore that would lead to better mating prospects. This is all fine, but there's a problem. There are traits that influence sexual selection that are not useful or adaptive to the animal. Under Darwin's theory in The Origin, there are some traits that should have been eliminated because they are clearly disadvantageous, and one notable example of this is the peacock's tail. Famously, in a letter to Asa Gray, Darwin wrote how this problem and the sight of a peacock's tail made him sick because it couldn't be explained by his theory in The Origin. The solution Darwin arrived at in The Descent of Man was to consider the idea that traits like the peacock's tail were signals of evolutionary fitness and therefore would be very attractive indicators to potential mates. Therefore, while not advantageous to survival, the trait would continue because of the increased attractiveness it bestows. One of the common misconceptions about Darwin's ideas is that Darwin's evolution is about survival of the fittest. But this is not a phrase that Darwin used. This phrase came from Herbert Spencer after reading Darwin's work. As we have seen with the example of the peacock's tail, Darwin's theory considers more than just traits which are useful for survival. In 1874, Darwin's publishers were planning on another printing of The Descent of Man, following the success of a cheaper edition of On the Origin of Species. But by this time, now in his 60s, Darwin was tired with evolution and wrote in a letter to his cousin, William Darwin Fox, that he would not write about it anymore. The final scientific work that Darwin would write was the formation of vegetable mould through the action of worms. It was published in 1881. Charles had originally developed an interest in earthworms shortly after returning from the Beagle. One of the reasons for his renewed interest in earthworms was an increasing sense of his own mortality, and therefore... He wanted to learn more about them before he was buried, and to quote Darwin, he joined them. Darwin found earthworms 
absolutely fascinating. He ended up with hundreds of them in his study, wriggling about in various glass jars and soil-filled containers. These he used to observe and conduct experiments to better understand their behaviour. When it was dark, he would shine lights at them and observe that the light made them immediately move to their burrows. He also observed how much soil they moved and conducted a simple experiment to see what the real effects of their movement would be. He placed a large stone in the garden of Down House to see at what rate would it sink. Darwin had visited Stonehenge and had noticed that some of the stones had sunk into the ground and he had thought that worms were the cause. He was the first person to discover this. This book on worms was to be his last work, Inquiring into the Natural World. Darwin's health was declining. At four o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday the 19th of April, 1882, Charles Darwin passed away in the arms of his wife, Emma. He was 73 years old. Among his final words were, I am not the least afraid of death. The following day, the papers reported Darwin's death and announced that he was to be buried in St Mary's Churchyard, near his home in Kent. Following this announcement, members of the scientific community, including Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, and the president of the Royal Society, William Spottiswood arranged instead, with the Darwin family permission, to have Charles buried in Westminster Abbey. This would mean that Darwin would occupy the same hallowed grounds as Isaac Newton, which was fitting as Darwin had been described as the greatest Englishman since Newton. Charles Darwin's contributions to our understanding of the world was immense. He forever changed the way we understand life on the planet, and he even impacted our understanding of how life would likely develop elsewhere in the cosmos. He approached life with an insatiable curiosity, and his detailed observations led him down avenues of new discoveries. His voyage on the Beagle has become the stuff of scientific legend. Walk into the Natural History Museum today and sitting central in the staircase will be a statue of Charles Darwin that has sat there since its unveiling in 1885. He was one of the few faces to be printed on British banknotes. Today, one of the most prestigious awards biologists can receive is named in his honour, the Darwin Medal from the Royal Society. In his time, Darwin's ideas were world-shaking. They were dangerous and they threatened the established order of things. His ideas are still serving scientists to this day. His ideas have so far stood the test of time. And that's why the life of Charles Darwin endures to this day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Enduring Lives podcast. If you want to see other episodes or see the show notes for this episode, go to EnduringLives.com. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe if you want to get the latest episodes when they're released. I've been your host, Shane Lee. Thank you for listening. Until next time.